I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Now what? That's the nothing personal two words of the day. Now what? Watched episodes nine and ten of The Last Dance, the denouement, and the finale. It's done. Ten hours of a Michael Jordan documentary. I want to review it, and I got to spend quite a bit of time. I want to give a summary, and I want to ask a question. Coke, I'm going out of order already. I got to start at the end. I sent out a tweet when it was done. I watched it from 9 to 11 locally, Eastern time, with commercials. And I was thinking to myself while watching, when are we going to hear about Michael Jordan, the owner? Michael Jordan, the GM. Michael Jordan, the wizard. When's that coming? We're running out of time. Nine turned into 10 o'clock. Episode nine turns into episode 10. The heartstrings were being pulled. Great soundtrack, by the way. Ending the last dance with a Pearl Jam song was outstanding. I sent a tweet right after it was done because I was upset. I was upset you've heard for five straight weeks. Two episodes a week for five Sundays. Reviewed it each Monday. And you've heard me say that as a Knicks fan, it's just been brutal, absolutely brutal. But as a huge NBA fan in the 90s, it was great to relive it, to see some of the old footage. But I couldn't help but understand and want to understand why it is that Jordan shows what he did. The way this works when you do a documentary like this, there's a lot more than 10 hours of footage. Let's say there's a hundred hours of footage that gets edited down to 10. And there's likely way more than that. How did Michael make the decision of exactly what he wanted to say, what questions he wanted asked of him? He was interviewed three separate times. You saw him in three different sets. None of those were his house, by the way. They rented houses. He didn't want us to see his house. Wouldn't have cared. Dennis Rodman was done in a hotel. Scottie Pippen was done in a house he had just bought that had no furniture. It's fine. But why is it that Michael Jordan would agree to do a documentary about the 97-98 Bulls? The last dance. Yet they go into backstories of different players on the team. They go into North Carolina when Michael was in college. They touch on a few of the negatives, the gambling, the murder of his father. They sort of touch on baseball just a little bit, a little bit of Tito Francona. And then at the end of the 10th episode, they do the update. I don't know what it's called, Coca. Do you know the actual word when it's ending and they put the update in prose form on the screen? John and Jane lived happily ever after and now live in Podunk, USA. John is still practicing law 10 years later and working on the following cases. 
All of that happens. That's fine. Well, in this case, in the last dance, they simply said, following the 97-98 season, Michael Jordan went back into retirement. Scottie Pippen was traded. Or released. Dennis Rodman was released. And they went through the players. No mention that Michael Jordan came back three years later to play 92 games with the Wizards over two years. No mention that Michael Jordan's now an owner. So I tweeted saying the following. No Wizards, no Charlotte, no doubt about who was in charge of the last dance. And people got on at David P. Sampson. I like Twitter. People can air their views and grievances behind letters and numbers. I'm good with it all. What I found interesting is that people said, hey, this was about the Bulls. No, it wasn't. This was just about their season, the last dance. Well, that's not accurate at all. We saw highlights and they went through finals and stories with Clyde Drexler and Carl Malone and George Carl and Brian Russell. Yada, yada. It defies credibility to not have asked the question of Michael. You spend 10 hours. Let me, let me actually say what the actual time is. Nine hours and 57 minutes of the documentary about how bad Jerry Krause was as a GM. Then we find out in a late edition, they add a little compliment from Scottie Pippen. Jerry Krause has to be the best GM of all time. Put six championships together. Well, I guess you got Red Arback in there because he was the coach and GM in Boston during the Russell days. But Jerry Krause is clearly number two. No doubt about that. So Scottie Pippen congratulates him, says he's great. They throw him a little bone. I think that the last dance editors and even Jordan himself realized that they maybe came down just a little hard on Jerry Krause. But why wouldn't Jordan have agreed to answer the question that we were all asking? If you thought it was so easy to put together a team that had you on it and would win titles, what is it like now? Especially in this era where sports, there is such a divide between players and management, players and owners, players and GM. What is it like for you now? Can you address your competitive drive and how frustrating it is that your players when you were with the Wizards or your players now that you're the owner in Charlotte, that they don't have that or they don't have your skill? What drives you to keep going? Is it ego? Is it asset appreciation? Or is it delusion where you think that you're doing a great job? It doesn't take away from his legacy that he is the greatest of all time. No one needed this documentary to teach them that. But let's get inside your head because you now are one of the few people who have a unique vantage point. I found it frustrating to me. My overall review of The Last Dance, and then I want to talk about episodes 9 and 10, is that it was exactly what the doctor ordered. We had 10 hours of distraction over five weeks when there were really no, were no live sports. We had some golf. We had some NASCAR. We had the German Soccer League starting up yesterday. When this started five weeks ago, this was the opportunity for people to engage and to have a big audience, and it was the highest-rated documentary that that network had seen, averaged five and a half to six million viewers. To put it in perspective, not quite Survivor. But what struck me is that what exactly did we learn that was new? We had heard rumors that Michael Jordan was a very competitive guy. We know that. We knew that he 
like to gamble and golf and play cards. It struck me they allowed cigar cigar smoking on team planes. We saw that yesterday. Never would have allowed smoking. We let players smoke before they got in the plane and when the plane landed, but not during the plane ride. What struck me is the way that he had to have a personal vendetta that he would many times make up in order to motivate himself. I've done some thinking about what motivates people to be great. Normally, it is greatness, achievement, measuring. Michael Jordan wanted more than six rings. That became clear. We have to address that today. But the purpose of him putting out this documentary and then people saying, I want to see one about the Patriots now. I want to see one about other dynasties You forget the fact that there were cameras there in 97, 98 that had access that was incredibly unique from start to finish. Someone tweeted how great it would be to have a camera to have followed Derek Jeter, maybe. Derek Jeter never would have allowed cameras like that. Very private guy. What else was seen when the cameras weren't rolling during this 97, 98 season? How much editing was required? What were the rules of engagement? Before you start a show, there have to be rules. And I don't mean the documentary, The Last Dance. I'm talking about the rules of engagement that year, 23 years ago when cameras started following Jordan and the team in 97, 98. You had to have Reinsdorf approve the owner. You had to have Jerry Krause approve the GM. You had to have Phil Jackson approve the coach. You had to have full player buy-in. We didn't have that with the Marlins when we did the franchise in 2012. Never got the full buy-in of everyone. Having a camera in the training room before tip-off, having a camera with Jordan as he was talking with his security guards, as he was gambling with his security guards, after games right in the clubhouse. Pretty amazing ability to see what goes on behind the scenes. But I wanted more. Over 10 hours, I enjoyed seeing the tape of games, reminding myself how unbelievable those playoff runs were and that team was. The backstories of Steve Kerr's father, the backstories of Pippen and the back injury in 1998, the backstory of Rodman. I had totally forgotten that Rodman went and did a wrestling appearance during the 98 finals. I had totally forgotten that. But what was on the cutting room floor? And what was the reason for it? That's the same question I asked about what wasn't asked at all in the current day interviews. What makes a player like Jordan decide to give permission for certain things and not others? And the answer is it's to spin a narrative. The narrative for Michael Jordan to me watching those 10 hours was very simple. He wanted number one to remind people that he was the greatest greatest player of all time. Number two, he wanted to put to bed any possibility that gambling had something to do with the murder of his father. Number three, he wanted to put to bed that he was any sort of gambling addict. Number four, he wanted to make it clear that no one has had the drive that he's had to succeed ever in the history of sports, and he matched it, that drive and that desire, with rings. That sort of combination has not existed. Number five, He wanted to make people understand that he was a businessman off the court. Yet, of course, he didn't address his businesses off the court. We were reminded about shoes. There were a lot of cuts to Michael Jordan putting on his shoes, looking at his shoes, 
a story about him wearing the original Air Jordans. Interesting to me, very self-serving, very much business, very little personal. Isn't it fascinating that Jordan's sons and daughter ended up with a tiny moment in episode 10, either nine or 10? They melt together. It's a two hours. Somewhere in that two hours. We saw his first wife, Juanita, at the press conference when he retired. A picture of her in the stands once. No mention of his new wife or his new kids. No visible interaction with family after championships. They chose to cut to him playing the piano after they won the sixth championship. It looked like he had his, as he called it, his entourage, people around, security guards. Not uncommon, by the way. I wanted to clarify that for people who thought it would be strange that he'd be hanging out with his security guards. Not at all. Those are the people you end up closest to. You trust them. You allow them to do anything for you. They are in your inner circle. They know where all the skeletons are. They help you put them away, and they help you hide them and keep them hidden. We found out a brand new story about one of his security guards, his best friend, the story of how he got sick, how he was like a father figure. I thought the interview with his wife saying that Michael Jordan, when the security guard, by the way, Coca, I know that it's Monday, so you may be a little off your game. But when I say things in general, like his security guard, it means I've totally forgotten the guy's name. I want to say it's Gus, but I probably have that wrong. But Coca, if he were like in Wednesday form, here's how Coca's week goes. Monday, tired. Tuesday starts to wake up. Wednesday, he is prime and good. Thursday, it starts scaling back down the mountain. By Friday, he's all but disappeared. So it's okay, Matt. I just don't remember the name of the security guard. So it was Gus. Thank you. (laughs) It's always fun when he whispers something when I'm like two minutes past the point. Gus Lett. So they interviewed Gus's wife, talked about the relationship that Michael had. You got to see a soft side of Michael being in the hospital when Gus was getting cancer treatment, seeing how Gus would be his protector. We got to see his strength and conditioning coach, his best friend, how they were always there to take care of him. And then we found out one of the only new things in this documentary, and it blew my mind. There was a game that I remember very well. It's called the flu game against the Indiana Pacers in the 1998 97-98 conference finals. Michael Jordan had the flu. Marv Albert, I believe, was doing play-by-play at that time. Everyone was talking about the fact that he looked bad. He was sweating. He looked like he had fever. He was having tons of problems, yet he had one of his greatest games, and they pulled out the win. I just assumed it was a flu game. And having been in sports 18 years, I've seen players play sick. You have to get them IV liquids during the game. You have them drink Pedialyte. Gatorade, and you tell them if you're seeing three balls. By the way, this is a similar thing that you tell players when they're hungover. When you see three balls coming at you, swing at the middle ball. When you see three ground balls coming toward you, put your glove in the middle. That's the general rule of hangover playing. And trust me, David Wells and Dallas Braden don't corner the market on players playing with horrific hangovers. So I didn't 
think anything of it. Michael Jordan had the flu. I was going to take him at his word. I did all these years. All of a sudden, the strength coach gets on TV and he says, and I'm only going to reiterate it for those who have not seen it yet. Spoiler alert. If you didn't watch it, you're now spoiled. He was hungry at 1030 at night, night before a game. And apparently there was no room service at the Salt Lake City Marriott. By the way, this is against Utah, not Indiana. So strike that. Edit that out, Coca. This had nothing to do with the Indiana Conference Files. The flu game was against the Jazz because it was the Salt Lake City Marriott Hotel. Wow. (laughs) He's now accusing me of being asleep at the wheel. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. I had the wrong team. It's all mixed up. So he's at the Salt Lake Marriott. 10.30 at night, no room service now. If you've been to Utah, you know that there is an early bar call. No doubt about that. Restaurants don't close late. But when you are a team and you go to a road hotel, now, did it change from 1998 to 2000, which was my first year on the road with the team? One of the criteria to be a road hotel is 24-hour room service. Now, that rule has nothing to do with what happened in Utah. It has to do with we don't want players being forced to have to go out to get food. Because when players go out, there's a 50% chance that they're going to come back late, drunk, high, or tired. So we want players to have the opportunity to eat in their room. This is pre-COVID, by the by. So there's nothing open, except they managed to find one pizza place in all of Salt Lake City. They ordered a pizza. I'm just laughing because I'm picturing the scene. Michael Jordan in his suite. There's a piano. He's saying, boys, I'm hungry. And they say, we're on it. There's no Grubhub back at this time or Uber Eats. There's no, I doubt there was even internet. Or if there was, it was not being widely used. So they find an open restaurant. It's a pizza place. They order a pizza. It gets delivered. Now, the way it works in hotels where players stay, was this not the case in 98 in Utah with Michael Jordan, the rock star? He is bigger than the Beatles. We went through years with the Marlins where we were the no-name gang, and we had security at the front of the hotel. No idea of what room, when you wanted food, someone had to go down and get it. There's not delivery. And if there is delivery to a room, it's in an, under an alias name. You think that Michael Jordan was registered in the Salt Lake City Marriott as Michael, Jordan? It'd be Jordan, Michael. N-C. No chance. But five pizza delivery boys came to Michael Jordan's door and knocked on his suite claiming that they had the pizza, handed the pizza. They tried to look in to see if they could get a glimpse of Michael. There was suspicion on behalf of the strength and conditioning coordinator for Michael. But Michael gets the pizza and eats the entire pizza by himself. So how many of you have ordered late night pizza when you're with a group of people? How many of you have had the entire pizza to yourself and not shared one bit of it with anybody? I've never heard of such a thing. 
a late night munchie run with a group of other men and you're not sharing the munchies? But let's pretend it's true. So five delivery guys come up and deliver a pizza. Jordan says, or the strength guy says, it was a little suspect. But Jordan eats the pizza. 3.30 in the morning, he starts vomiting. He has food poisoning from the pizza. He then plays the next day, and it wasn't a flu game. It was a food poisoning game. And we're supposed to believe that story? That's what you're going to come up with? Okay, two sides. Remember I said on Nothing Personal that I thought there was much more to Michael Jordan leaving basketball than him just being sick of it and wanting to go play baseball? While everyone said that that's just a conspiracy theory and I'm Oliver Stone and that's ridiculous, he was sick and tired in 1993, went to play baseball for a year and a half, and then came back all of a sudden midway through the 1995 season. That's all good. Normal. Oh, yeah, he went to play baseball for the White Sox, same team owned by the same owner. Owner, normal. Mm, Don't think so. But let's just pretend it was. And it's been kept quiet, people said. How could you keep a conspiracy that big quiet for that long? Has anyone else heard the pizza story before? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? I never heard it. I'd like to think I'm on top of some of this stuff. Some of the gossip. Michael Jordan played with food poisoning because people in Utah poisoned a pizza. They happened to be in the one open restaurant planned that way. I guess they had every other restaurant closed. Had every restaurant closed. They knew that Michael Jordan would get hungry at 1030 at night. They got the call. Now, did the strength guy call and say, hi, my name is John Doe, and I'm calling on behalf of Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls, and he's really hungry. I know you're closing in five minutes, or you may be closed, but is there any way you could maybe just make one pizza and have it sent over? Feel free to bring as many guys as you want because he'll sign some autographs for you. Give me a break. The way an entourage works is they protect the player. Players aren't not just registered under their own names. They're not calling for takeout. Yes. Can I have a name, please? Michael Jordan. Cell phone number uh, 312-696-6969. No, it's not how it goes. So the whole thing made no sense to me. But apparently, it was the bad pizza game. What about a Rashad? Did that sit wrong with anyone or just because I've been in the industry? They showed so many clips of Ahmad Rashad in the, in the clubhouse, in the back private room pregame with Michael Jordan, hours before tip-off. And then they showed Ahmad Rashad as the sideline reporter giving updates on Scottie Pippen when he had a bad back or giving updates on Michael Jordan. Now, Michael Jordan and Ahmad Rashad are friends, but as the president of a team, there were certain rules that we would not break, even for Michael Jordan. There is no member of the media allowed in the clubhouse when the media is closed to the media members, when the clubhouse is closed to media members. It's, there's no exceptions. I don't care if it's your best friend. doesn't make one bit of difference. Ahmad Rashad had one of the biggest conflict of interests I've ever seen. 
I'm fine that he's best friends with Michael. No problem. I'm fine that he would have inside information. No problem. I'm fine because it's an interesting relationship when you're friends with someone in the media. I am friends with people in the media. And it was always called into question by my PR people, by the owner of the Marlins. It was always called into question whether or not this member of the media was actually manipulating me or I was manipulating him or was I leaking to him? Was he leaking to me? There is such an opportunity for a problem. Yet there was no mention of it by anybody. It's just Ahmad Rashad was there as though we would forget what Ahmad Rashad's job was when he was doing this. He's not famous because of what he did on Inside Stuff. He's not famous because his, his daughter stars in billions. He's not famous because he's the ex-husband of Mrs. Cosby from the Cosby show, Mrs. Huxtable. He's not famous because he was one of the great wide receivers in Minnesota Vikings history. Coca, there's a 90% chance I got that wrong. He played for some team. I think it was the Vikings. He played some position. I think it's wide receiver. He is most well known for being MJ's guy in this documentary, perpetuated that. What a conflict. What about the seventh championship? I'm going to close down Last Dance with this. Biggest point of the entire documentary. The biggest question asked, because I have been, let me give you a little background. Won a World Series in 2003. Had to trade a few players, tried to win again, did a complete rebuild in two th after 2005. People called it a fire sale. Tried to build the team back up, did a complete rebuild after 2012. People called it a fire sale. You say tomato, I say tomato. The fact is that we did not give a core of players a chance to win once we had thought they were no longer going to win, period. Thought we had some great players, didn't work out. Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the Chicago Bulls, had won six titles in eight years. The only year they didn't win a title when they had Michael Jordan playing once he won his first title in the 1990-91 season was in 95 when he came back from playing baseball for Reinsdorf's White Sox and simply could not get past the Orlando Magic. So the question that needed to be asked, and it was finally asked, was, what happened after 97, 98? We knew from the whole 10 hours that Jerry Krause said Phil Jackson will not be back, period. Jerry Krause was the general manager. When the owner has a beef, let me say it a better way. If the owner has to choose between a GM and a manager, the owner will use a few things in deciding who to choose. He will use his own sort of biases who he's closer friends with, who he likes better. He will use a contract, who has more money left, who gets paid more money. He will use desire. What is my desire for this team financially? Do I want to make money next year? Do I want to lose money next year? Do I want to add players? Do I want to subtract players? All of that comes into play when you're deciding between two people who don't get along in the organization. Your number one choice is to tell them to get along. In my years, we had plenty of people who couldn't stand each other and it would manifest itself and there would be arguments with internal meetings. We had problems. I'll, you know, I'll just tell you, it's not, I don't know if this is a secret. It's really, it's over and done with. Larry Beinfest did not get along with Dan Jennings. 
Ironically, they had started to work together. They worked together, but they just could not get along. There were issues when we would have internal baseball meetings, issues where they'd almost come to blows. That happens when you're with people, when you're with a family, when you're together all day, every day. I'm not surprised that Jerry Krause did not get along with Phil Jackson. There's ego involved. There's credit involved. There's jealousy involved. All of that is normal. But when you're winning title after title, you find a way. You find a way to coexist. Is it true that it was irretrievably broken between Jackson and Krause? Yes. Is it possible that Jerry Reinsdorf gave Jerry Krause the right to get rid of Phil Jackson after 97, 98? Not one chance in hell. No matter what Jerry Reinsdorf says, no matter what Jerry Krause would have said, rest in peace, would he have said, I have the power to fire Phil Jackson or to trade Scottie Pippen. I could do anything I wanted. That is wrong. You must have owner approval. The owner decides at the end of the day, OP, owner's prerogative, it happens. So the question was asked of Jerry Reinsdorf last night. And if you notice, it was the same background for Jerry Reinsdorf's interviews in episodes one through 10. It was one sitting that they interviewed Jerry Reinsdorf. And he was asked, what happened after 97, 98? And he answered, an answer that apparently Michael Jordan had never heard. And we're going to talk about that because that's a lie. Guaranteed. So Jerry Reinsdorf says it would have been suicidal. A very poor choice of words should not have been put into the documentary. It should have been a retake. You don't describe. And again, you know, I've told you some stories about Jerry. I am, Jerry's like a mentor. I've known him for decades. But you don't use the word suicidal. That is a serious sickness and illness that people have. He said it would have been suicidal to keep that team together and pay market rate for those players. What he meant was that the losses that would have been incurred would not have been worth a seventh championship. My expression, the juice was no longer worth the squeeze. The additional season ticket holders, the elasticity of ticket demand and ticket pricing, there wouldn't have been an ability to take the payroll where it would need to go to sign those players. And these were not spring chickens. There was a good chance that the Bulls were not going to win the title in 99. Although it was the Knicks who got there with a hurt Patrick Ewing. So could it have happened? Mm, Yeah, it likely could have. But Reinsdorf said it would have been suicidal. He meant financially not worth it to get the team together. And I told Phil Jackson, Jerry Reinsdorf said, which is completely counter to everything we learned in the first nine, nine hours and 56 minutes. I said, Phil, do you want to come back? You can come back. You've earned that right. And Phil said, no, it wouldn't be fair to Jerry Krause. There is no manager or coach who says that about the GM. It wouldn't be fair for you to invite me back. How about a one-year $20 million deal, Phil? Would you come back? Hey, Michael, how about one year at 40? Hey, Scotty, how about five years at 30 or one year at 60? Steve Kerr, we'll take you back. Michael Jordan said he wanted a chance to win that seventh. Michael Jordan said they would have won that seventh. Maybe, maybe not, but give me that chance. I wanted to go out on my own terms and we didn't have that opportunity. Would Scotty Pippen have agreed to not sign a multi-year deal and just do a one-year deal? 
Jordan said I could have convinced him. Obviously, that's the height of narcissism, right? And egomaniacism that you would be able to convince someone to do something financially that's not in their best interest just to win a seventh ring. Incrementally, the difference between six and seven, you're not going to catch Bill Russell at 11. Not going to happen. It's unlikely he didn't know at the time, but it's very unlikely that any player will ever catch Jordan's six being the centerpiece. I think Robert Ory may have more than six. Steve Kerr is a player coach. Phil Jackson is a coach coach. But I'm talking about as a player leading your team. I think Robert Ory Coca, doesn't Robert Ory have like six or eight? Like Robert Ory may have the most rings of anyone next to Bill Russell. He was on those teams. He won in Houston, 94, 95. He won in San Antonio. I think he may have won with the Lakers. I'd have to check that, but he's got definitely a bunch of rings. Seven is what Coke is telling me. Thank you very much. So that is one more than, than Jordan, but I'm not comparing Robert Ory to Michael Jordan in no way. Please stop that. So we learned that Jerry Reinsdorf said to Phil Jackson, you can come back. Phil Jackson said, I don't want to come back because of Jerry. And Jerry said, I wasn't going to bring players back. And Jordan claims that he never knew that until he saw it on the iPad, which is now the new way of showing people things. You record an interview and then you show you another interviewee what that other interviewee said about him or a situation. And Jordan said, and this is for dramatic purposes only, of course. He said, I never knew. So let me tell you how owners' meetings work. You spend time with other owners in owners' meetings. Michael Jordan's an owner who goes to owners' meetings. Sorry, Reinsdorf is an owner who goes to owners' meetings. They would talk. They would get together and see each other minimum four times a year, and that's minimum, assuming they never spoke outside of that. You're telling me that Michael Jordan never thought to ask Reinsdorf, hey, Jerry, I mean, it's 20 years ago. What happened in 98? Why didn't you just ask me? I would have come back for another year. Phil would have come back. But no, never thought to ask and learned about it on an iPad during the filming of his interviews parts of The Last Dance. That bothered me because it's so far from possible. Inexplicable. So to sum up the last dance, I'm thankful, I'm appreciative, I'm sad, I'm inquisitive, and I have wonderment as I think about what could have been for me as a fan if Jordan had not eliminated Patrick Ewing four times and broken my heart four times. Thank you, everyone who did the last dance. Shout out to Mike Tolan, the, one of the producers. Shout out to everyone who participated sharing your stories. You are appreciated, not because we're in the time of COVID, because you have an interesting story to tell. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm going right to So You Want to Talk to Samson Coca. I'm doing it because this is fascinating. Something came up this weekend, Friday, late, after we had done Friday's show. I called Coca. I said, we got to do a bonus pod. He said, just think about it. This is a very sticky subject. You got to be very careful here. The NFL, and this was a question that was asked, by the way. So you want to talk to Samson was a simple question. What's your view of the proposed new NFL rule, rate diversity hiring? Thank you. Getting into my Twitter at David P. Samson. Thank you very much for DMing me your questions. Get to a lot of them. This is a question I wanted to do an entire show on. It's a landmine, but we're at nothing personal here. Landmines are my game, but I've got combat boots on. The NFL owners will be voting this week on a new proposal where when a team hires a minority GM or a minority coach and or as a reward for that, they will move up in the draft in the third round. Let me say that slower and more clearly. If you hire a black GM, and you keep that black GM for two years, your third round pick, if you were picking 20th in the third round, you get to pick 10th in the third round. If you have a black coach who stays two years and you were picking 15th in the third round, you now are picking 10th in the third round. It goes even deeper. If you hire a minority coordinator or quarterbacks coach, you get an extra comp pick in the third round or fifth round. Mostly in the third round. The fifth round, you get a comp pick if you lose a minority to another team. Excuse me, if you're watching this on YouTube, I appreciate it. I have a little tickle in the throat here on a Monday afternoon. If you're listening, I've totally muted it by pressing the cough button and you know what I'm talking about until now. This is the most significant rule change I've ever seen. There's something called the Rooney Rule in the NFL. We've talked about it. The Selig Rule in, the major, in, in Major League Baseball, we've talked about it. We talked about how it's perfunctory in nature. When I interviewed managers, we had to have minority candidates on the list, so we'd interview them even though we knew who we'd want to manage. They never had a chance. By the way, it had nothing to do with them being a minority. There were plenty of Caucasians, plenty of white people we interviewed who didn't have a chance either. We wanted to get information from people we interviewed. We wanted to learn, and we knew who we wanted to hire. 70% of all coaching and GM interviews, and this will be denied, but it's just accurate, 70% of the time you know going into it who you want to hire. On the baseball GM side, given the analytic nature and sort of the young studs who are being hired now, 
that percentage goes down to 50-50, where you could be absolutely blown away during an interview by someone's plan, generally analytic, someone's intelligence. Sometimes some coach comes in and just says, wow, I've got a plan, hire me. It happens. But now what the NFL is doing, trying so hard to differentiate themselves from the other leagues, trying so hard to be mindful of diversity hiring, they've gone and jumped the shark. I've thought about what my reaction was going to be. I'm not racist. I'm not against diversity hiring, except in one way. Not racist in any way, let me be clear. I'm against diversity hiring in one way. If you hire someone who is not qualified simply because of their color, you are doing a disservice to your team and to that person. That goes for a diversity hiring or a non-diversity hiring. If you have someone do a job who is not capable of doing it, you have made a mistake and done a disservice. The NFL is now incentivizing teams where draft picks are a currency. Just picture in, the, in MLB where draft picks are like gold. If I had a choice running an NFL team and I had a tie between a diversity candidate and a Caucasian candidate, I'm hiring the diversity candidate because I can move up 10 spots in the draft or six spots or five spots in the draft. I will break the tie because of it. Is that the point of the NFL's rule? Yes. But here is the tiny little tangential consequence of this type of rule. What if it's not a tie? What if you've got a situation where someone is brought in and the owner steps in or the GM overrules his general view of who should be hired because that GM wants extra picks. This brings tokenism to a whole new level. We were worried about giving token interviews. What about now if it's a token hire? What about what it would do to all diversity candidates if someone not qualified got a job because of this? The NFL could have done much better. They could have come up with a rule where they were secreting away $10 million from every team and taking $320 million and putting it into an education fund where they were going to teach not just minorities, but teach candidates how to get through the system. MLB tries to do it with, through a diversity fellows program, and it's great. How do you interview? How do you put a resume together? for people who just don't have the opportunity to learn these skills. People who are less fortunate, they get an opportunity. It doesn't matter what your color is. It matters what your opportunity is. When you have the opportunity, what you do with it is what makes the difference. To get the opportunity, you need the arrows in your quiver. You need tools. I want the NFL to put together a toolbox not incentivized with draft picks. We're going to talk about this more because I think there's going to be blowback. I don't know how this passes. It needs 24 votes out of 32. I think it is a huge mistake for the NFL. Of course, I'm nothing personal. I'm on record. Yes, I am every single day. 
the NFL will rue the day if 24 owners agree that you can simply legislate away racism. ML Beard Challenge, we're up to day 64. It's a big day because we had two NBA cities left. We ended with the Lakers on Friday, but you know that we skipped two. We skipped the new, I was going to say the New Jersey Nets. They're the Brooklyn Nets, and we skipped the New Orleans Pelicans. I was going to say the New Orleans Jazz, but it's the Pelicans. Nets, New Orleans, we're day 62 and 63. We're giving $1,000 away to each of those teams' foundations. That concludes all Major League and NBA cities. But the Beard Challenge says that we are not coca and I are not shaving our beards until Major League Baseball has opening day. And for 100 days, we are going to continue to give away $1,000 a day to needy charities. We've got 35 days left to 100. MLB's not starting within 35 days. I promise you that. So today we're starting to ask you, send at David P. Sampson. Let me know some charities that you like, some organizations that are giving back. I want to hear from you. And I started with you, Matt Coca. You asked me to get involved with HudsonGives.org. HudsonGives.org is an organization that engages middle school students and fosters their love of writing through sports writing. I don't know what, this is a problem right now where he talks while I'm talking. He wrote right to the goal. I don't know what that means. Oh, right to the goal is the name of the foundation. Thank you. <laughs> I thought that you went to say R-I-G-H-T. Get right to your goal of getting $100,000 and having other people donate, which I want you to do, whether it's $19 or $119, whatever you can do. As I said, tip your delivery people. Please, people are in need. HudsonGives.org, right to the goal is the name of the foundation. Right to the goal, as in W-R-I-T-E, where they are teaching and engaging middle school students and fostering their love of writing through sports writing, getting sports writers. Coca, I appreciate that. We are donating $1,000 to Right to the Goal. I need more suggestions. I've got a lot of thoughts. There are a lot of great causes. I'm going to tease you one this week. We heard from someone in Edmonton. We're going to take care of that organization in Edmonton. We are a cross-border. Our borders are open on nothing personal. So please, tell me about an organization that I may not know about. Tell me about the name, what it does, and why you think that organization deserves $1,000. We've got 35 days left to go, and we are going to see this through. Because you know very well how it works here at Nothing Personal. Not all of you are going to get it. But you all deserve it. But unfortunately, it's just business. It'll be nothing personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.